Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The Andy J Podcast. Podcast. Hey, welcome to the very latest Andy J podcast. I hope you're doing really well. I'll tell you what, we have a fascinating, hilarious, enriching, amazing conversation for you today. I'm so, so chuffed with this because my guest is amazing. She's the brilliant Ruby Wax. And what a career and life Ruby has lived. So you've got the highs and lows of, I mean, everyone goes through highs and lows in their life, of course, but rubies are pronounced. She had a challenging childhood. She has battled depression throughout her life. However, she's come out the other side and become this incredible, remarkable mental health campaigner. But in between times, her career has spiked some truly remarkable moments. I mean, she's the lady that went face to face or toe to toe with Donald Trump before he was running for president. She had this unprecedented access to him and, well, they did not get on. She had O.J. Simpson stab her with a banana. She rifled through Madonna's knicker drawer and many, many more. She's just, I remember watching her when I was growing up, just being utterly mind blown at this incredible effervescent charisma bomb. I mean, she's a proper charisma bomb of a woman. She would go in unfazed by these global superstars and just, well, treat them in the most fascinating of ways and it would always be gripping watching she's also a brilliant journalist i mean she went in there fully tooled up and ready for us it was entertainment watching what she was doing with her ruby wax meat series and so on but for her it was finely tuned precision conversation she'd done her research she knew everything about these people probably more than they knew about themselves at times and she was able to find the way to get the magic i admired her so much watching those shows i loved them and then she went on to do so many other different things. I mean, here's a little little one for you. Did you know that she was the script editor on Absolutely Fabulous? Wow. I mean, just drop that one in. She was a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company. She worked extensively with Alan Rickman. He directed her in her comedy. And this is just the showbiz stuff. You know, since then, she's written scores of books. The latest one, A Mindfulness Guide for Survival. It's about kindness, peace, changing the way you think, introducing calm into your life. She's amazing. I think she's absolutely brilliant. I'll tell you what, I'm going to stop waffling and let's get straight in with our conversation. Just a quick footnote as well. Later this week, we're bringing out a bonus podcast episode where we've got three quick chats for you. Quick. Oh, I've got Ricky Wilson from Kaiser Chiefs. It's about 35 minutes long. We've got the wonderful Claire Balding. Uh, that's about 15, 20 minutes or so. And we've got Honey Ross, Jonathan Ross's daughter, who's just brilliant. And again, just about sort of 15, 20 minutes with her. So we thought we'd put them all together in one bonus episode. You'll be able to hear that in the next couple of days so please do hit that subscribe button to this podcast we really really love it when you do that and it helps us enormously with the guests we're being able to bring in so thank you very much for now though here is ruby wax the andy j podcast uh, ruby let's let's talk about your remarkable life 
if we may. Can we can we start early? Are you happy to start way back way back like in Illinois? When I was born. Yeah, if I mean if you can remember it. Um well, I wrote a book called How Do You Want Me? So, it, it, you know, the good lines are in there. <laughs> I've read it, but I'm not going to paraphrase it because it's your book and your journey. What can I say? I came from Evanston. I, you know, I came from uh, very dysfunctional people. Um, and so that made me leave the country very quickly, as soon as I could walk, pretty much. Uh, and they were from Vienna, and I didn't really know who they were until they did that show. How do you want me? No, that's my name and my autobiography. Who do you yes. think you are? Yes. And then I saw, you know, they never mentioned that they came out of Vienna and that um, and they were refugees and a lot of my family didn't make it. But they never mentioned that. You know, they would say, oh, well, everybody was fine. And, um, and so when I did that show, I could see what happened. So I would have had some pity for them or, you know, but they, did, if they didn't say it. So I just assumed they had lost their minds. But because their lines were so good and they had those accents, you know, the Viennese, <laughs> I took all their lines and I turned it into comedy when I got here to the UK. And um, and so that's how I got, you know, they helped my career in a way. I didn't have to edit anything. They were just hilarious. <laughs> so then I filmed my parents early on in something called Miami Memoirs, where my mother did a famous line where she was on, she had OCD clearly, but we didn't know what mental illness was back then. So she was following me around on all fours with a sponge in both hands, cleaning a shag pile carpet with the fa- with the camera crew. As uh, let me just set it up, she used to want me to take showers outside of the house, oh, somewhere else because she didn't, even though we had a couple, she didn't want me to get dirt into our house. So everything was covered in plastic. I think my grandmother was covered. Every everything was covered, so you made these sucking noises when you got up. So she crawled on the floor after me because <clears throat> I'd clearly brought in sand. We lived on the beach and she screamed, civilized people don't bring sand in a building. <laughs> and um, oh, that gosh. became quite a famous line. Wow. Yeah, wow. that was the level. So, I mean, the, my book, How Do You Want Me, which I wrote 20 years ago, is filled with the joy of my mother's lines. Yes. Yes. I mean, this is this is the remarkable thing, Ruby. I mean, you say you, you fled them as soon as you could walk, as you put it. Of course, it, mm. was, it wasn't as soon as you could walk. That it wasn't, no. I uh, walked a little bit. <laughs> that would have been out the door at two yeah. and a half. I had to sell Girl Scout cookies to get to England. <laughs> you know, I didn't have the money. But your but your parents were challenging. And, and I mean, I, I'm brushstroking here because it's, I can't do it justice. Only you can. But but it, it does seem that they had a particularly strange connection to you, partly, I think, perhaps because they had you later in life. Uh, you can make every excuse in the world. It would have been strange anyway. I mean, they wanted, um, um, my mother thought photocopies came out. And uh, and they liked me. And well, I was adorable until I could speak. And then it was another language. And they didn't understand me at all. I grew up in, when America was free. And they grew up in a repressed society that they had to get their tails out of fast. Get out of Dodge. So they were maybe pretty jealous of what I had going. So they set up a kind of um, war situation, a war lockdown in our kitchen. So they would play basketball or, or, or piggy in the middle with me, both giving me hell. Now, I, it could be because they escaped Austria and they were angry. I didn't want to go into the reasons, um, but it wasn't good. No. 
No, it sounds like it wasn't good. And it had nothing to do with what I ended up with my career because there's well adjusted people in comedy. But it did make me run out of there to get as far away as I could. And I had no particular talent at all. But I came to England and lived in a bedsit um, with those coals. Maybe nobody knows. You had to put 50p in a slot to get heat through the winter. Otherwise, <clears throat> you'd have to straddle your hair dryer. <laughs> so I, I practiced my Juliet speech, speech to get into Rada, and I made myself a wimple out of cardboard. And then I went to Rada seven times and Gosh. did my Juliet speech, which, which entailed beginning by going, my dog is dead, my dog is dead, because I knew Juliet was upset in the speech. So I made myself cry, but I forgot. I said, my dog is dead out loud. <laughs> so I didn't get in. I didn't get in for seven seven auditions. And uh, and I didn't get anywhere else, but Glasgow took me. So, um, and that was kind of a, an, you know, it wasn't as cute as it is now. It wasn't a cultural center of, of Europe, uh, but it looked like an ashtray. And they had... Very little talent at the time. I don't know who showed up. Somebody who had to go right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot to walk. And um, so I did get in. <laughs> I, I did get in. <laughs> and then I, I was driven to be successful. And um, and then I was. Yes, you, you really were. And we're, we're going to come to that. Can I just ask a, a quick question about your parents? Because you, we've established you fleed them and, and, and everything that went through for your childhood, but in, in later life, did you ever get any indication from them after you were such a, a global success and a mother to three children and so on? Did you ever get any sort of resolution or applause from either of them or acknowledgement that actually you had exceeded them? And No, I mean, he would tell, um, well, Alan Rickman was my hero, my mentor. He would tell Alan, this is kook stuff. They're laughing at her, not with her. And it was Rickman for 30 years who said, uh, no, Mr. West, she's quite talented. And um, so I heard that my dad used to take around magazines with articles around me in Evanston, uh, showing people my success on, um, in magazines like The Milkman and the person who was the bank teller. But to my face, he never really said much. They said, this is, you know, this is a kook stuff. And when I got into the Royal Shakespeare Company, he said to Trevor Nunn, look, if you could get Julie Andrews, you wouldn't be here. Wow. Um, so it, it was all an accident. I think if I, he heard I got an OBE, he'd pr pretty much think it went to the wrong address. <sighs> wow. So um, I'm, I'm not saying feel sorry for me. You know, I don't tell these stories anymore because eventually it's like a broken record. But you asked me. Yes, I did. I did. It's on me. How do you how do you feel yeah. towards them now, Ruby? I, I pity them. You know, they're dead. But uh, I too bad they didn't show me who they were earlier, or uh, you know, check out who I was. We would have made um, we would have made peace, but yes. we didn't. You know, not everything ends like a movie. Yes, that's true. That's true. Okay, so we, we're in Glasgow. Then you've mentioned Alan Rickman and Trevor Nunn, the RSC. I mean, this is quite a leap from someone putting 50p in to get some coal to, to stay warm, working with people who maybe weren't the most talented in the world, through to being in the RSC with the people who are the most talented in the world. Where did this sudden flash That of, was a leap. Yeah. That was a leap. I, I didn't get any parts in my drama school, which is weird because <clears throat> you have to pay to get in. <clears throat> but <clears throat> sorry, 
I never, um, I didn't get a role. Then my class really complained about it. I was just playing person who brings out forks. And um, <laughs> at the end, I really, I pulled out the stops and I could audition. I could play crazy people like nobody could. So I took, and Phoebe, and as you like it, because I did good wench. And then when I went to the RSC to audition, they had never seen anything like it. It was so over the top. So they offered me a place. And then I met Alan Rickman and we had a house together. He had a girlfriend that he had to the end. But he said, you should write the way you speak. So I wrote comedy and he directed it and he directed it for the next 30 years because he could show me how to do it. I didn't know how to do my own line. So, and uh, so, and and he saved me. So I don't think I would have been. I don't think I'd be alive if it wasn't for Rickman. Wow. I mean, Ruby, how were you being perceived then by the people that were then saying, "Okay, you can audition," and yes, you're into the RSC, etc. Were you were you just sort of this this charismatic American that they hadn't seen before, or or were you going in no, there they doing? No, no, no. They hated Americans. Um, you know, at that time, we were seen as kind of right wing or something. You know, we were selfish and greedy. And then England caught up with that. Right. I wasn't. I didn't have any money. But, um, <laughs> I, you know, they hadn't, since uh, Richard Chamberlain, they hadn't taken any Americans. But, you know, I, I could, I don't know what they took me for. I, maybe they knew I'd be fun. And when I got in, I started writing shows and I was playing the lead and people like Zoe Wanamaker and Jonathan Price and um, Richard Griffith they, and, and David Suchet, they were the small part. And I had the big role. <laughs> and then Juliet Stevenson, I wrote her a part, which was much smaller than mine. And that show took off and went to New York. Um, and then it was, it was pretty, I've stayed friends with them all these years. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the people you want to be friends with. So, so Ruby, what, I mean, what happens there to you, to you sort of, that's quite a pivot, you know, from, from being a, a, almost a dunce on stage, not getting the auditions, etc., to then being with such esteemed company. You must have known that these were incredibly talented individuals with Alan and Zoe Wanamaker and so on. You must have been aware that, that the bar... Yeah, I knew the, how good they were. And, and but, then I, I go on stage and, and I, in my mind, they throw little notes at me saying, change your career <laughs> while I was on stage. And I, would, I was bright red when I'd have to speak. Because I knew I wasn't good. Um, now, when I say comedy, sometimes I know it's good sometimes, but my acting isn't very good. But it must have it, been it, good because you couldn't. Have it been was doing okay. It. Well, I know, but I kept like my dad. I thought it was a mistake. <laughs> but then I got I very I got very popular, and I was head of our social life for everybody. I would I book restaurants in peculiar places, and I I know that people were fond of me in the company. Okay. Okay. So this is this is early eighties when you're when you're yeah. acting with these people, trading the boards, writing, and so on. And yeah. at this point, does it seem clear to you that there's a career path unfolding that you can see what you're going to be doing for the next decade? No, so? not no. You never can. No. Then I started writing comedy because uh, God. Oh, I was writing comedy in the RSC. Yeah, that Rickman said was great. And then I eventually started doing one woman shows that he directed, and then. Um, and then I met French and Saunders, Dawn and Jennifer, did Girls on Top with them, was interviewed by uh, Michael Grade just from doing Girls on Top, and he was head of Channel 4. <clears throat> but because we were in the Edinburgh tent, we were on at about 2 in the morning following a, a Zulu tribe doing their 
their um, national music. And we knew we were dead ducks, you know, after that, white people stamping on their seats. <laughs> so we got really drunk um, in the back of the tent. And when we came on, I don't know to this day what I did. But um, <laughs> afterwards, Paul Jackson came up and said, you have your own series. Um, you have 12 shows. Wow. And then I started having my own shows. Yeah. I don't know what I did. <laughs> this is from your chat with, no with Michael Grade when you were drunk. No, we went on stage together. Oh, and did something. no yeah, way. He was being interviewed. Yeah, we were, both went on stage and something happened. <laughs> and that's what led to Don't Miss Wax, My the Channel show. 4 show. Yeah, yeah. And at that's that point, did you still, I mean, was there imposter syndrome going on here? Or were you just thinking, all right, this is, I'm just going to do it. No, I um, I I just there's a moment where you just get, you don't think you're great, but now you uh, have a job to do, so you get scared, you know, that you'll screw up. So I really focused, I really focused, and um, ma I made up how that show would be. I'm I'm good at ideas, so I said it's a house, the set is a house, and the B celebrities would be downstairs in the kitchen. And then when had the really great ones, they would go upstairs. So there were different rooms. Yes. And sometimes Jennifer Saunders and I would wander off and we had a crash because at one point we were both pregnant. And then, um, and then I, well, I started to play with form. And for example, Emma Thompson couldn't make it. You know, we had booked her and she couldn't make it. So during the week we filmed, and this happened with Joanna Lumley too. They both couldn't make it on my live show. So I, I filmed myself crashing into their home and we had them, we had it set up. So Emma was too drunk. I couldn't get her out of bed. But finally, when I do, I make her sing. With Lumley, I crash into her house and she's clearly a hooker. She's sleeping next to this guy who's in full garter belt. She gets up. And I'm hiding behind a curtain and start snorting Ajax and has just dead meat in the fridge. And she's insane. And that became, I think, the birth of Patsy. Yes. And then and um, we we did that every year that Lumley got crazier and crazier, pretending she was still on the Avengers and bringing a paper gun into the BBC. <laughs> and I direct her. It got wilder and wilder. And you know what happened? The audience would write in at home and say, how dare I break into Joanna Lumley's house? <laughs> oh, amazing. Yeah. amazing. Yeah, they didn't know the joke. And Ruby, to be given this freedom as well. I mean, it's it's not something modern television, I think, would allow. There's too many sort of hurdles you have to leap, et cetera. But, but did you sort of think to yourself, wow, I've, I mean, this is incredible. I can do what I like. Yeah, I, no, no. I, I thought it was incredible. And especially the stars we were getting. You know, Lauren Bacall and Shelley Winters and Billy Crystal and I can't remember. You know, big boys of that time. Yeah. Brooke no. Shields. And and then and they'd go upstairs. But then I started filming um, more and more outside. So I filmed Jaja Gabor and Tammy Faye Baker, um, who was the wife of the evangelist who stole all that money. And she, when we got there, weird things happened with me. She sh to show me she was normal, she got in her bathtub in water up to her knees and cleaned the walls while she sang "When Life Hands You a Lemon." So there's golden moments that wow. happen when I start filming people. And then it started, and that's what's on in August. You're not getting Tammy Faye Baker, but you're getting, <clears throat> and I have a long time with these people. You couldn't get that today. Yes. So I'm with Pamela Anderson, um, Tom Hanks, Jim Carrey, Bette Midler, Goldie Hawn, 
Drew Barrymore, and we didn't even show all of them. Uh, O.J. Simpson, and um, and I'd have that show. I don't know for maybe twenty years. Did yeah. I different variations on you, that? You did, and you. Yeah. I mean, I mean, on on O.J. for example, you got him to stab you with a banana, didn't you? No, I didn't get him to. He willingly did that. Yeah, I was interviewing him for about seventeen hours, and what I used to do is exhaust people, <laughs> um, people like him. We drove around in a white van, which was how he escaped. And so um, at about four in the morning, he really wanted me to bust him. You know, this is a guy who didn't know he did it. He talked himself out of it, but would tease me so that I'd, I'd lay into him. Like we, when he, we kept driving by where the knife was supposedly buried or whatever, we'd go by the judge's house and he'd scream abuse out the window. He'd tell me poems about murdering people. And then at four in the morning, he goes out the door and then knocks on the door and comes in stabbing me with a banana. So there's a guy who's uh, got problems. Yeah. And you must have been, uh, presumably with your TV producer's hat on, when he's doing this to you, you must be thinking, well, this is gold. We've got it. Yeah, I thought this is gold. And then it was stolen out of our editing suite and they played it all on the American news. Um, so <laughs> people were interested then. And he, um, well, you know, I say it in the show about what he does after that when I got home. But you have to watch the show to hear that. Yes. Yes, indeed. Well, he was just one of scores of, of people you spoke to and, and, and mm. interacted with in the most sort of, in a way that only you could get away with. I can't think of anyone else that could rifle through Madonna's knicker drawer, for well, example. Well, I'll tell you how it happened. I had, long t- I had a long time with them, sometimes days. So we just, we established the relationship, not so much with Madonna, so that, um, but they felt easy with me and they were in on the joke. Yes. That's how I got it. You know, sometimes they tell their producer or PR person to take a hike because they like being with me. And so I lived with Hugh Hefner for five days. I spent four days with Imelda Marcos. I just show them a good time. You would, but but this was also born out of research into them as well, wasn't it, Ruby? You were yeah, in their but I heads. never used any of it. I mean, I I would know, I would know everything about them. But if we were going off piece and it was fun and we were playing tennis with our wit, I didn't go back to the question. No, no, but you used the knowledge you'd gleaned to be able to adjust yourself to how you like. For example, there's a famous story about Imelda Marcos where you had borrowed some very expensive jewelry to. To, yeah. to lure her in, effectively. Well, I knew that she would be a, a snob and she'd check me out. You know, if I was just a normal interview, she said, I got 10 minutes. But I was wearing all of Theo Fennell's jewelry, which we had to insure. I mean, I was in a lot of jewelry. So she thought, oh, I'm not dealing with a journalist. And then she found my photo. I don't know how that happened. I really didn't put it there of me on the cover of Hello magazine. And from that moment on, she was going, oh, she's on the cover of Hello and she grabbed my hand and took me everywhere and showed me her new stash of shoes and sang to me. She sang feelings in her wedding dress and the, the, the storm, you know, the clouds came out. Did you find and that she gave me everything? Did you find that most of these people wanted to be your friends? They wanted your approval? No, I wanted their approval. Yeah. I mean, you have to fight for that because they're, you know, they're used to everybody being sycophants and I was never a sycophant. So. Yes. Yes, although, of course, there were a few examples where that didn't quite work. Donald no, Trump. With, with Donald, he scared <laughs> yeah. me. And Bill Cosby tortured me. So it didn't work with those two. It was a car crash. Have you watched them back? 
Yes, I watched it for the show. Mm. I hadn't seen him in 25 years, so they filmed me watching it. And um, and that's what you're seeing, is somebody's reaction who hasn't seen it for 25 years. Yes, this is the BBC Two show that's coming out, isn't it, when Ruby Wax met? On the 22nd, yeah. Yeah, which is a review of, of this incredible television that we're discussing. I mean, Ruby, if you had the opportunity to, to do it again, as in now, 20, 25 years later, to, to go back and re-meet Trump and so on, would would you do it? Of course I would, you know, but I would be 20 again and I'd have that, um, you know, that, that turbo engine, but I would do Trump's interview differently. I got intimidated and he could see my fear and now I would be able to cope. I'd be able to cool my engine because uh, that's my area now and, and ask sensible questions that might reveal more about him. I mean, he does get, you do see what a, how vicious and how, how much hatred he has, but I'm asking stupid questions. Had I asked normal questions and he still felt that way about me, you would have thought, wow, really? So people still think can see that something's wrong with him. Mm. You don't throw somebody off a plane at 33,000 feet because he told me he wanted to be the next president in the United States. So I started laughing and um, that just threw him over the edge. But then at the end, he likes me because we had some quiet time together where he tried to shock me about what he does with women, but I'm not shockable. So he liked me. Yes. Interesting. Were you surprised when he became president? Are you kidding? Yeah. That came out of the blue. (laughs) Yeah, but I had, um, in the show, I traveled through the South once he throws us off the plane, so I could see potential voters. Yes. Uh, I could see that the South wasn't quite with the rest of the world. Yes. Well, they showed up when it mattered to him, didn't they? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He knew how to handle that. Yeah. Oh, I really I really want to see a you re-meeting Trump. I think that would be incredible television. Yeah, it won't happen. <laughs> because he would say no? I would say no. I mean, he, of course he'd say no. Hello, it's John Markar here from our sister podcast, The Driven Chat Podcast. Right now, you're listening to The Andy J Podcast. And it's quite good, isn't it? In fact, do me a favour, give it a little review, five stars, and wherever you're listening, hit that little subscribe or follow button because it does help. See you around. Podcast. Yeah, he told somebody he'd kill me if he ever saw me again. Oh yeah, I'd avoid that then, Ruby. Maybe, maybe not the yeah, wisest. I yeah. will. <laughs> that's not, yeah. that's not a room to step into. And sort of meanwhile, so while all this is going on, these amazing shows that are happening and this, this incredible charismatic television that you're producing that no one has ever seen before, no one's seen this interview style, and it's and it's never been copied or bettered in the way you did it. Meanwhile, you're also incredibly busy with. Family Life, with script editing Absolutely Fabulous, which is a huge, huge hit. I mean, where did you find the time, Ruby? I, I'm really quick. I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, I wrote this last book that I wrote, I did it in three months. Um, I, ha- You know, I, I can fill it out when I need to. And the, the joy of speed, of this speed means it's funnier. Um, yeah, it doesn't take me long. If I get the idea, and AbFab I could do in seconds because Jennifer gave me the greatest lines on earth and I just had to polish them. It wasn't like I was looking at a blank page. And even with my book, I'm using um, you know, science and I'm using evolution and I'm using neuroscience and then I'm twisting it into comedy. So I don't do fiction. I don't have to use my imagination. But I can, if, I, if there's the lines on the page, I can twist them into comedy. Wow, what a skill. 
So are you not exhausted at any point, Ruby, with, with everything that's yeah, going but I, on? Yeah. Well, when I was younger, I would crash and burn, you know, and then I, I happened to have depression. So it didn't, the work didn't make me crash and burn, but the depression would come upon me and then I'd have to shut everything down. But that kept happening at a certain age. And also I lost my job in TV. That's not why I had the depression. I mean, because depression's an illness. You can have it when you're doing your 15th show and it's the summer and everything's great. It's a disease. It's not dependent on what's going on. But when I did get fired, I did have the worst depression I've ever had. And then I swore to myself, I'd figure, figure out some way I could tell when depression was coming. You know, uh, I would hear the early, I would hear the early warning because when you're really busy and you're burning out and you want to show the world you're fine, which is part of the reason I worked on so many things, just to show everybody I was okay. That's that's when it's dangerous. I knew there was no magic pill, but I knew that maybe there was some way I could, you know, have an idea that the weather was changing. So that's when I went and looked at what was available and it was cognitive therapy, had the best results. And mindfulness had the most impressive results. Not a hundred percent. Nothing's a hundred percent. So I went to find out how this stuff works. And that, but I wanted to know what happens in the brain because I'm not into fluffy stuff. You know, I don't need a dream catcher. And I met the professor who created one of the creators of mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. And he was a professor at Oxford. And he said I'd have to get my master's and get into Oxford if I wanted to learn what happens in the brain. And so I did. And then um, instead of, you have to do a dissertation at the end for a master's and also a practical. But for my practical, I did a play. Um, and then I, that's how I passed. And then I turned it into comedy. And that was my first show. And yeah. that led to three more books. When he told you, you, you have to get into Oxford University. I was it... pretty, oh, I thought, oh, no way. But, you know, if you throw me a challenge, I got in. And I still think it's a mistake, but <laughs> I got it. But I mean, I, I did do, I do good interviews. So when I was interviewed, I said, even if you don't take me, I'm interested in the brain. So it doesn't matter. And people, I think, can't resist when somebody says it doesn't matter. Yes, it's almost like a challenge, isn't it? I mean, when, when this guy said it to you, you know, well, you know, in order to be able to understand this properly, you, you need a degree from Oxford. Was that almost like a challenge? Was he, was he being accepting and saying, listen, I'm afraid the only way you can do it is this? Or was it sort of, look, if you're serious, you need to go to Oxford, you know, in that sort of very British way. I don't know. I can't remember. I can't remember. You didn't have to just go to Oxford, but not many universities then were teaching, mind, giving you a master's in mindfulness. And I didn't, I don't like lightweight stuff. I really wanted to know the neuroscience. I always nagged him for the neuroscience. Now Exeter and a lot of other, well, not a lot, but a few universities can give you a master's in that. And that's sort of when people go, oh, roll their eyes about mindfulness. And it's an unfortunate word. It should be called a brain workout. I go, well, Oxford were offering witchcraft. So I thought there was something to it. <laughs> well, can you can you just explain those three words? Mindful, well, four words, in fact, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. What what is it? Well, that you know, I, by the book that's just come out, Mindfulness Guide for Survival. It, it isn't just mindfulness exercises. There's some. Um, it's a workbook, so you fill out certain things, and you can write in it. You can doodle in it. There's questionnaires, and mindfulness is similar. Uh, in that instead of a shrink who's 
noting your patterns of thinking. You know, some of us have little recordings in our head that play over and over again, like mine are, I'm not good enough. You can say, oh, yes, you are. But that's my recording. I'm not good enough. Everybody knows I'm a failure. Probably got it from my parents, but let's get over it. Let's get that, um, you know, it still plays. Oh. Or I haven't done enough or whatever. We all have recordings and people will know which ones play in their head. But the idea of mindfulness and cognitive therapy and what I'm writing in my workbook is get to know what those theme songs are. And then the uh, the mission is to get down your stress hormone, which is cortisol, face those those recordings. And I know that seems counterintuitive, but only unless you know what your baseline is. You know, this, this always happens. Whatever the circumstances, when I get scared, I always think I'm not good enough. You start to question it. Well, maybe sometimes I'm not, but sometimes I really am. <clears throat> and it, it's, it's true. If you repress it or you walk away from it, it'll show up anyway sometimes. And those words and that recording is playing underneath everything you do. So it shows up. But if somebody said, I like this, if you face the monster, it runs from you. And if you run from the monster, it chases you. And that's the same thing with getting a little bit of, do you know what I mean by insight? Yes. But the only way you can look in, you know, down the periscope into yourself and take a selfie, it, you know, it, you don't do it all the time, but at least understand. And that's what a shrink does, help you know what your patterns are. And that's what mindfulness does. You learn to watch the patterns. And then the most important thing is to give yourself compassion, because if you don't, you get even more, the thoughts getting even more violent. So, you know, it's almost, if you can calm your mind down, if you can get that cortisol down, you start to get kinder. And the, and the thoughts don't go away. You're not having a blank piece of time sitting on a gluten-free cushion with your eyes rolled back in ecstasy. The thoughts just get quieter, like they're a radio in another room. Yeah. They give up. You know, and that's my exercise every day. I sit, I watch those thoughts coming through because I'm used to it. And I'm used to pulling down my stress quicker. They get quieter. So I can function without being at the mercy of always feeling angry, which was my addiction. Always thinking I'm not good enough. You know, you learn to um, to work with them. So that when storms come in of stress, which just happened during lockdown, you know, people were really taken the rug was pulled out from under them, facing certain things that they never had to face before, which in the book that I've just come out with, I call the six realities, Yes, which is um, uncertainty, change, disappointment, you know, um, dis well, dissatisfaction, death, loneliness. But now let's remember, I, I mean, personally, I was lonely before. And when I, I run these talk-ins, Frazzle Cafes every night, and I'd have hundreds of people during lockdown, and I would hear what disturbed the most. And each one had a different reaction. So I started keeping a journal of what my own reactions are. And always by sitting back and looking at them, they start to disintegrate, let's just say. Well, one of they the first... Disperse. And you realize you're not your thoughts. It's a habit. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, well, one of the first exercises in the book, I, I have done it. I'm not going to say I've completed the book because I think it's a book that people will come back to and 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 appraise and change and alter throughout the course of their life. But one of the very first things you do is you talk about those those six those six subjects and you ask us 
as the reader to to categorize them, to grade them, which is which is most important to you. And of course, with with death in there, I imagine some you know death and loneliness and so on. Some people might. I found it really challenging. Well, which one am I most afraid of? Which is the biggest challenge? And and you ask people to look inside themselves. And it's a yeah. it's a book that you. And by the way, the, the writing is fabulous. It's funny. It's informative. It draws from all sorts of different things. Obviously, you're incredible learning, and you you have you rightly have pages in there establishing why you're the right person to write this book. There's also a strong leaning on some Buddhist teaching as well. And I just well, Buddhism. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a Buddhist, but no. um, there's a point. I'm, I'm was talking about different religions. It's it's not a religion, but they did happen to say um, part of human nature is we have craving, and that craving is never fed by anything outside. You know, we're in a state of hunger. So I, you know, clearly the guy had it right two thousand years ago, and then you know what what to do about it, and they called it meditation, but. In the West, John Kabat-Zinn, who was a molecular biologist, he turned it into a kind of um, technique for people, sorry, it started in the East, for people in the West, first of all, to deal with chronic pain. And then my professor, with two other people, um, turned it around and used it for depression. Now mindfulness is for not only pathologies, but for people who just want to learn to focus more, because it really does strengthen a part in your brain that helps you to keep focused no matter what distractions are around you. And people have to understand when you do brain exercises, something inside your brain is being exercised. Like if you do sit up, sit up, you there will be a there will be a six pack at some point. Otherwise why would you be wasting your time? But the difference between a six pack and a well honed brain is with the brain you'll live longer and unless you're, you know, a po- a boulder falls on your head. And you live healthier and you live more self-aware and you get these skills like lowering cortisol, being kinder to yourself and becoming present when you want to. Not all the time. Yes. One of the things you say in the book, Ruby, which is so telling, is, is the sort of philosophers of 2000 plus years ago. They, they, they were on the right track, but philosophy wasn't a, a job that paid the bills for many, 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 many decades. <laughs> yeah. The existentialists got, yeah. went unemployed. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so are we seeing... And religion was a really good answer. You know, let's not kid ourselves. We had um, community in the past. We had family units. We had religion. We had, you know, people were brought together. We had thrived. The problem these days is we don't have, most of us, most of us don't have any of those. So it's each man for himself. Thus, we're really lonely intrinsically. And then we have all this technology that's supposed to bring us together and it tore us apart. Yes. What's what's changed with humans now, Ruby? Because in, in our lifetime, in your and my lifetime, when we were growing up, mental health wasn't really something that was discussed or addressed or looked at. Even, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, it, it wasn't as prolific and important to, to human beings as, as it is now. There is a spotlight on it. There's an open awareness of it. You know, it's it's rather like, are we seeing a big evolution in the way human beings understand themselves, do you think? Well, the people that were part of the reason I wanted to get my book out in August and I had to write it so quickly was because by December, we might either be uh, traumatized or skipping out of our houses, pretending nothing happened. And if you do that, for most people, some people are really resilient. Um, those emotions will come up you and bite you at some point. So are we evolving? I mean, time will tell. I, now there's questions. 
there's questions people are um, putting out there. But even while I was doing my performing, more and more people started talking about, but let's make a division. Mental health isn't a, isn't a mental illness. It's like saying, are you physically healthy or have you got a broken leg? So both of them are coming out. We are, we're in a state of frazzled, which I didn't make up. That was one of my books. Frazzled means stress about stress. And that's a new phenomenon. It means, that means, um, oh my God, I'm stressed. I shouldn't be so stressed. Nobody else is stressed. Same thing with every emotion. That's kind of, unless you're really lucky, the state of the nation. Mental illness is something um, you need medication for. You have to believe somebody has depression, like Alzheimer's. You wouldn't tell somebody with Alzheimer's, come on, remember where the keys are. So depression is the real deal. I think you have to take medication. To me, it's not on a spectrum. You could be highly agitated, really anxious. You could burn out. To me, that's not not mental illness. Where does cancer start and just a couple cells multiply? There's a moment where it's cancer. To me. Okay. So with... So with the frazzled, and I know you, I know you have the frazzled cafes and frazzledcafe.org, etc. By the way, which is which I think is wonderful. But but with this, Thanks. with the the human beings being frazzled, this this feeling of overwhelmed and so on. Uh, I mean, do do you agree? When when we were younger, we were sort of taught true grit. Just you know, just suck it up, get on with it, hide hide if you're feeling whatever it is. Things that, that we didn't have words for. Frazzled wasn't something that, that people would have no. acknowledged or understood. This is what you didn't have that much to worry about. You know, now you're made aware of things that we didn't know about. You lived in the neighborhood, you knew what the neighbors were doing, you competed in your high school, you got into university. Now you're competing with the entire world. There's always somebody prettier. There's always somebody richer. We know about it every second. What do you think that does to somebody? The news was the news. We didn't have music playing, and it's the scariest images you could possibly see. So that makes our heartbeat and our blood pressure go up. And it also takes down this hippocampus, which means you can't think straight. So you haven't got it. You've got less of a chance. We didn't have computers, which images came up that say, buy these shoes now. Then it comes up again and says, they're on sale then it comes up again and they know exactly what your weakness is we didn't have those i call them weapons of mass distraction then so almost we humans don't have to blame ourselves it's not your condition it's now the human condition so things like mindfulness have to come into it there's not enough therapists (laughs) to go around so we have to have ways of self-regulating which means you're able to pull down enough of that red mist brain fog so that you can decide, I'm going to turn off my TV now. It's not 100%. Sometimes I'm so addicted, I'm up all night watching Netflix. But once in a while, I can pull out. Once in a while, I can tell I'm talking to my kids instead of being on the phone at the same time. But chances are getting better because I go to the gym with my brain. I'm scared what what would have happened to me. When I used to get angry, I couldn't stop it. I keep pumping that adrenaline because it's so good. Now I'll have a spike of anger, but I'll get it down pretty quickly by apologizing to the person I let have it. And nice. then, then, you know, and then my heartbeat comes down and the blood pressure comes down. Is this something, Ruby, that you think we, we should be teaching in schools? Because it sounds they to are me... Te- they're teaching it, yeah. Are they? Are they? I mean, yeah, I, I, have three, I have three children yeah. and I'm not, sure that, I'm not sure that my eldest, who is in school, has, has had these lessons yet. But I would very much like him to because it sounds... It sounds like these are vital tools in the modern world. 
uh, a lot of schools are. I did my the other book I wrote, and now for the good news, that's the other book. Um, I read, went around kind of the globe looking for what the where the green shoots are, and I found a lot of schools, uh, especially in the UK. They're, they're called Reach Two. That's one of them, and it's free. It's in really deprived areas. It's unbelievable. They don't call it mindfulness. You know, they'll call it well emotional resilience. They'll call it empathy. And a lot of schools, it started at Wellington, offer this mindfulness in schools. It's called Dot B, uh, but not all of them, you know, but it is coming because they understand academics. It's not just on your academic record that shows you're going to be a great human being. As a matter of fact, people who can take that kind of pressure just might have themselves, uh, an, you know, an, an Asperger's syndrome. Not always, but just if you're not emotionally savvy, then that's not going to count in 30 years. The, yes. the jobs that will be available in 30 years, they don't even exist now. So what are we pumping them full of, these kids? Yes, yes, that's a very good point and something I will, uh, I'll make a point of sharing with my boys. <laughs> find, find out where they teach mindfulness. Yeah. I, I don't know. You know, um, so many schools offer it now, emotional intelligence, empathy. It's, it's coming into the curriculum. But we we as parents can do things as well, though, can't we? It's, it's not the pressure can can't can't just be on schools. You know, we as parents have no. a responsibility to raise our children in the right way as well. And it's you know, I well, think... you can get you can go to Mark Williams. Oh no, you can go to Dot B online, or you can read my book Frazzled, where I stole that's my the I stole uh, exercises from Dot B and put them in my book. Not this one, another one. Another one. Uh, You've got so many books out, by the so way. So many Mary. books how'd, how'd that you I keep can up with it? you to. Yes. Frazzled has the exercises. Yes. Yes. I mean, fabulous. I mean, do you love writing, Ruby? Because you, you have made, so, I mean, all of these books that you have referenced and touched on and, and given us the titles for, incidentally, all of them have been number ones, Sunday Times bestsellers, etc. You know, you, you're not saying that, but they've been huge successes. Well, and now for the good news is coming out again in uh, in January in the paperback because it came out during COVID. So I don't think a book title and now for the good news to the future with love really did that well. <laughs> so I'm hoping this one does, um, this, this new one, because I think it's timely. Yes. I, I don't love writing, but what I do is I get to research. So I get to, you know, I'm allowed to talk to a monk and a neuroscientist for how to be human. I can go around not the whole world, but I can go to Finland and check out what are they doing with education or working in companies that are, it's called conscious capitalism now, um, where kids say, the millennials say, giving is the new taking. I can do that and then bring the information to a, to a paper and that feeds me. It makes me feel better. I mean, I'm in an eco community right now that I researched for the book and now for the good news. I'm there now because it makes me feel good. But I'd only have found it through research. And you do this research yourself. You you get online yeah. and you look for these people. You haven't got a team of waxers. No, I wish I did. <laughs> no, you make a hundred phone calls and you get closer and closer, and you research it, and then you'll find. Then you go bingo, you'll find it. Do you find that there are a lot of open doors because you're Ruby Wax? No, because most of my stuff was in America. Well, not most, or or I went to China or. Finland, they don't know who I am. Wow. America, well, how would they know? But, um, you know, you, it's the same thing with the show that's coming up. You just, just listen to them. People like to be asked questions. 
Yes. And when you're not curious, they're not interested either. Yes, that's true. Do you do you ever use the uh, the three initials, the OBE? Never. It doesn't. In America, they think it's disguised. <laughs> you can get cream for that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what a shame! But but also, what an honour and and richly deserved. To be fair. Oh well, thanks. Yeah. Well, <laughs> As if you needed to hear that. Um, Ruby, it's, it's a daft question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I, I only really do daft questions. Are you, where are you at now? Are you, are you happy? Yeah, but let's define that. I'm not like, you know, champagne corks popping in the uh, jacuzzi. Because I, you know, I did get like buzzes and highs and stuff. The only problem is you keep chasing the next one. So I'd say, well, I'm here in this eco place, you know, where I'm going to go work in a garden now and the food goes to a food bank. This is so not me, but I was working too hard and I needed to rest my brain. So as of yesterday, I'm here. You know, you don't finish a book and start doing all-nighters and not um, give yourself a break. And in the past, I just start with the next book. But I know how my mind works, so I'm here. I'm going to work in the garden. In human life, I don't go near gardens. So, <laughs> so that's, that's self-awareness. So what, you're just working on the courgettes and checking the beans and all that sort I, of I don't stuff. know. They're going to tell me today what I have to do, but it's not just I'm growing it and it's cute. It goes to people who need the food. Yes, yeah, so you're making a real difference. I hope so. And then I hope, you know, I work on charities and things and then I'll write a new book because Mama needs new shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll tour because have... I love doing live gigs. And will you? Will we see you back on stage in a comedic way, or is it mostly now focusing? Well, my, all my shows. Are, well, I never did stand up. My shows are usually based on the book, so I I twist science and I make it comedy because I think you have to give people something to swallow rather than just eating Chinese food that they forget about when they leave the theater. Yes, I love that. And and how do you get your fix these days, Ruby? What's the what is that high for you? If my book sells and doing the um, carrots in about an hour. More, more now. My book sells. <laughs> <laughs> is that? Yeah. I mean, is that something that still sort of? Do you still check the the, the you know where is it doing in the sales this I week? I can't. And all It'll make me sick. So I don't. I don't check it. I don't check Instagram. I don't check Twitter. I I put I put through somebody Twitter, but I don't count the followers because I'm human and I'll get envious. And envy is another one of my triggers. So I try to avoid it. So you haven't experienced the, uh, the, the, the horrors of a troll then? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I've never looked. And that's the best way to be, I think. It's, I mean, that's, we, we talk about sort of giving young people these tools, and actually I think everybody needs them, frankly. But like you say, the explosion of information that we are subjected to continually and endlessly having to compare yourself to everything that's happening, there's the other sort of demon in the internet's closet, which are these trolls that just come out and are nasty for the sake of it about anything and everything. And I just sort of, I wonder what's wrong with the world. Sure, but I don't want to get upset about stuff that hasn't happened yet. No, no. Well, you, I mean, but there's yeah. no reason why you would receive any, but, but my point is that I'm not talking about specifically you. I'm talking about. Yeah. Youngsters well, you or, have to ask yourself the question. Yeah. You know, it's sometimes not what happened. It's your reaction. You know, like that's why a little bit for the book again, it's horrifying. It's terrible. But if you start going into what if scenarios and I should do and I couldn't do and what's wrong with me, that's how you get too stressed. It's really handle it. 
and don't, you know, either ignore it uh, or, you know, don't look or try to nullify people. You know, people that are vicious are suffering from something. Yes, that's a fair point. Ruby, it's a very, very powerful book. I found myself last night, um, because obviously having having now read the whole book and, 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 and completed the workshop element to it, I found myself last night, we're in the middle of a meteor shower. The next three or four days are, are the old shooting stars. So I decided to go out oh, right. and, and, you know, look up, which is something I love to do. And I realized that what I was doing whilst looking is I was connecting with my senses, which is something that you talk about. And it's not something I'd ever considered, but I was becoming aware of my breathing and of the taste in my mm. mouth and the smell and everything. And it, I've, I've realized that this is, this is a byproduct of reading your words. Well, there you go. I helped you look at the stars. But again, it's not touchy-feeling when you do connect to what you're looking at, tasting, hearing. It brings down your cortisol because you can't have that. You could have, you shouldn't, you didn't voice when you're when you're really listening or really tasting. You can't have both parts of those brains on at once. So you you do give yourself a break when you really listen or really look. And the present is a really nice place to visit. Yes, yes, especially when you've got carrots to attend to and and a future book to plan. I gotta go. Yeah. 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 Ruby, thank you so much for your company. I've absolutely loved it. Thank you. It was good questions. It was great. I really, Thanks very much. really enjoyed our conversation. And I, and I can't wait to see what happens next in the Ruby Wax <laughs> Evolution. That's the next book. Yeah. <laughs> what is it? Is what's it? What's next? Is it? It might, it's, what's next? Yeah. Oh, fabulous. Yeah. I'll let you know. Will you, please? Yes. Yeah. You have my number and I sincerely hope <laughs> we'll chat again. I'll and, call you. I do too. Good. That would be amazing. Ruby, thank you very much. You're a remarkable company. And I stand by what I said at the start. You are my hero. And I thank you. The Andy J Podcast. That was Ruby Wax. Mind blown. I could talk to Ruby for hours and hours and hours. And I hope I really hope I get the chance to do it again. I thought she was just fascinating. Really, really fascinating. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Quick reminder that on the way in a couple of days' time, you'll be able to hear from Ricky Wilson, Claire Balding and Honey Ross as special bonus episodes of the Andy J Podcast. We'll put them all in together. And then next week, what a conversation we have waiting for you. From the Saturdays, Frankie Bridge opens her heart and she will be here. Well, you'll be able to download it next week. Whatever you're doing with yourself, have a great week. Be kind, make someone smile, and please do subscribe to the show. (laughs) There's the last little kicker for you. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.